0: This could last five hours. That is how much I'd love to talk about you. I think the simple thing to do is just to tell people to read Harlem to Hollywood, or even better, see it. Do you remember going to the premiere of the movie about your life?
1: Yeah, we had it at the, uh, there were two screenings. uh, One at the Grammy Museum here in Los Angeles, and the other was at the Harlem Film Festival, which, which was pretty cool too. I got to see a lot of old friends back in New York.
0: Yeah. What was the reaction to it?
1: Everybody loved it, you know. Uh, I think they were surprised that something so low-budget could uh, come out so well.
0: I do hope to see it, as I hope to see your birthday show, uh, Pluggity Plug. The live stream is uh, Saturday 14th of May. Yes. Are you in rehearsal for that, or you, do you have enough muscle memory just to go out and have fun on that night?
1: No, we, we know all our stuff. We've been playing the songs for 40 years, so...
0: Yeah, that's the problem when you got so many hits, and I've had a lovely few days listening to your catalogue, uh, not just the Billboard Hot 100 number 1 that everyone should know, uh, but the Judy Clay stuff and the stuff with the beaters. Uh, but I'm here because I saw your name in an obituary, not yours. I didn't know about Art Roop whatsoever. If only there were a book that could tell me about it.
1: And strangely enough, there is a book written by yours truly, with a forward by R. Rup himself.
0: This guy who, as with most wonderful Jewish figures in music, and there are some bad ones, but the good ones are all epochal figures uh, in the music business. Um, born in 1917, which means if you go back 104 years from that point, you get to 1813, which I think, is that the, around the Louisiana Purchase? So if you go backwards in time from that birth date, it's... Quite staggering uh, to see how long he was alive, although he got out the music business early.
1: He was not only alive, but he remained a contributor to the world right up until
0: the end, you know, with his uh, Arthur Root Foundation. Have you benefited from that, or would you play benefits for it?
1: No, no, he didn't have benefits. He, uh, You know, he'd, he'd finance uh, films, he'd, he'd pay for people to go to college... He did a lot of of things through that foundation. And, of course, he he did very well with his oil and uh, real estate organization as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, Oil and real estate is safer than records and the record business. The record business as we know it doesn't exist. And you can probably tell me a question that I don't know the answer to. When did the record
1: business end? Well, uh, you know, for me, it ended, for my taste anyway, in music. It probably ended about 30 years ago. Yeah. I, I didn't quite keep up with, you know, the the latest records. And I think that's, a, that's just a, a function of age. Uh, I like the older music, and, and some of the newer things just didn't appeal to me as much.
0: Well, they do say that when you get to the age of 31, and when you get to the age of 31, you will know this. You'll appreciate this when you get there. But your tastes ossify. So whatever... Uh, you like at 31 you like for the rest of your life obviously you can gain an appreciation for certain musics um, which is why you get an older crowd going to see the opera but yeah rock and roll certainly is a young man's game and we've got the rolling stones or just stones it's being advertised in London I don't know if you've seen this but they're playing Hyde Park which is obviously partly that part of their mystique and the the history of it but Mick Jagger is almost 80 Uh, one of them has passed away. Ron Wood is getting on. Uh, Keith Richard is getting on. But 60 years after the first records, uh, and there's a specialty record connection, they're still performing. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, my my theory too is, along with your 31-year-old theory, is
1: I think that most people have nostalgic feelings for the music that they heard when they were 14 years old.
0: The number one song, on your 14th birthday, defines your music taste. So
1: I think you're probably right. Uh,
0: and the number one on my 14th birthday, I think, was probably, gosh, I don't know, uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, okay. early 2002. I've, I would ask what it was on your 14th birthday, but the Hot 100, oh, did it exist, the Hot 100?
1: It well, I can work. tell you the first records I bought yeah. in a store, I actually remember The it was a uh, Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino and Honky Tonk by Bill Doggett and a much lesser known record called Priscilla by Eddie Cooley and the Dimples. Eddie Cooley being uh, one of the songwriters that wrote the the song Fever.
0: Ah, Peggy Lee. Uh, And you play some of these records. I want to get all the plugs in up top. Uh, I want to front end (laughs) the set by saying that you are on Jazz FM 88.3. I don't know why I'm doing the voiceover. You can do it, but I'd have to pay you to do that. Jazz 88.3, KSDS San Diego. We used to listen uh, to KYXY, Kixy 96.5, because I know San Diego very well. Uh, but I think oh, great. I think we've flipped to Jazz FM. We may even have heard uh, your Saturday Night...
1: Jump Blues. Yeah. It's been on uh, Saturday Night Fish Friday, they, they, they named it. And it's it's jazz eighty uh, eight dot slash s n f f as in Saturday Night Fish Fry. Yeah, and that you can get that on your computer and, and listen at any time one wants uh, because all the shows are archived.
0: Yeah, they're on demand, and that's that's going to be me for the next few months, I think. So thanks for that. Saturday Night You're Jazz welcome. and Blues Fans Unite, as Billy Vera. Brings you the best in jump blues, barrel house, boogie and early rhythm and blues, featuring rarely heard recordings. Now, we have in Britain a guy called Jules Holland, whom you may have come across. He was the... I've heard
1: it. Yeah, yeah, sure. He's a songwriter, right?
0: Yeah, uh, keys uh, primarily. And he also fronts the rhythm and blues orchestra. And he likes the boogie and the woogie. And he goes on big tours every Christmas with guest vocalists such as Ruby Turner, who really is magnificent. Uh, And he's... Uh He keeps the flame of boogie woogie alive because of the left hand, the strength of his left hand uh, and I suppose you can play the boogie woogie because you've played organ in the past
1: i did uh, unfortunately i've in the last couple of years I've developed a little bit of arthritis mm. in a couple of my fingers so i i have I've, had, I've put down the guitar and uh, and and the keyboard as well, uh, much to the chagrin of the fellows in the band who insist that my Dumb little guitar licks are a, a, an important part of the, the sound of the beaters, but it, be that as it may, arthritis and old age kicks in.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that rock and roll... Rock and roll will never die, but it will hurt your fingers and your voice. You've got to take care of your body. I think Eric Lapton can't play anymore because of his arthritis. Uh, Pete Townsend's oh. got tinnitus. A lot of the rock and roll guys have not died before they got old.
1: Yeah, yeah, It happens. You know, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, you can eat healthy and, and, and uh, exercise, but certain things like arthritis sneak up on you either way.
0: You do describe yourself in your Twitter bio as a Grammy winner first, and we will get to that because primarily you're here to talk about liner notes and uh, your work with um, heritage music, I guess we can call it. I can't call it old music. But the last of all, last but not least, you're a record collector. So, a stupid question: How many? A less stupid question: Where are they? Well,
1: I have no idea how many, but they take up two bedrooms in my house. Uh, <laughs> one bedroom is the forty fives, and my reference books that I use when I'm, you know, writing liner notes and articles. And the other, the other room is mostly LPs, and some and CDs are in both rooms. Yeah. You know, I I keep um, my jazz CDs in the LP room, and uh, the rhythm and blues and pop and all the rest of that, I keep in the same room as the the 45 collection. And of course, you know, the first 45s were released in April of 1949 by RCA Victor, followed quickly by Capitol Records. So my, my 45 collection goes back that far.
0: You were born before the 45, you grew up to see the LP take over, and then the compact disc was there when you had this number one that... I'll try not to talk about it, because you probably get sick of talking about your number one single, because there is so much more to Billy Vera uh, than at this moment, which is why I've got you in the music library, and you get your music library card. You do get a pictographic representative on your library card so an image of someone and you can choose from literally thousands of musicians if you wanted to pick one in terms of import a musician or a producer or a record executive who would you put on your card
1: it's difficult i've, I've often said that to me my taste in music you know it's it's very personal but the the greatest musical figure of the second half of the 20th century for me was Ray Charles. And for the first half of the 20th century would be, I could only narrow it down to two and that would be Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. But for my graphic, I would like to put on a picture of the guy who I share a birthday with, which would be the great T-Bone Walker.
0: Ah, now this is a guy I know by name, but I don't think I could hum any of his licks or songs.
1: Oh, you, you've heard, if you've heard Eric Clapton, if you've heard Jimi Hendrix, if you've heard any guitar player that plays the blues, you've heard licks, and Chuck, including Chuck Berry, you've heard T-Bone's licks. He's most famous for one song called Call It Stormy Monday, but Tuesday's just the same, which has been recorded by countless artists. And he was the first electric blues guitar player. Uh, in, the, in the 1940s is when he made his greatest impact.
0: And this was the era where the teenager didn't exist as a concept. So who was his audience in the 40s?
1: Well, his, his audience, I think, was, was black people, you know. I don't think there were that many white people listening to that music, except real connoisseurs. He, you know, he, he played electric blues. He was a great in-person performer. If you've ever seen... Of Course, you probably wouldn't, but a lot of the, the stage craft that, that blues players used. You know, I, I played with Jimi Hendrix a few times when he was with the Isley brothers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Ronnie Isley would, would sing Stormy Monday, T Bone's famous song. And then he would bring out Jimmy to do the guitar solo. And Jimmy would do all these old stage tricks. He'd play the guitar behind his head. He'd play it under his leg. He'd play it with his teeth. And all all that that showbiz, vaudeville shtick, as we call it, and and that goes goes right back to T-Bone Walker. It all evolved from T-Bone.
0: I see, and I will put that right. I don't suppose you've put together a compilation of T-Bone Walker stuff, have you?
1: I did, as a matter of fact. In fact, I put together a couple. I did one for Rhino Records, and I did one for... What was that label? Rockbeat, an offshoot label uh, that was uh, initiated by the, the former owner of Rhino Records, Richard Foos.
0: Ah, oh, like, Richard Foos. I know that name because I saw Foose. it pop up on your feed.
1: Yes, well, he, he was the founder of Rhino Records, which you, I'm sure you know. I they do. Are, they're the American lot of these yeah. records. I hadn't had a hit record in a while, I had no record deal and then at this moment was used on a television show that was very popular in America called Family Ties with Michael J. Fox. And uh, the television audience responded very vocally to it. NBC told us they got more phone calls than any song in the history of the network. And so I, I said, well, you know, people must like this song. It had been out in 1981. And, on, and had gone to number 79 on the charts in America on Billboard. And so I happened to have one of my periodic uh, lunches with Richard Foose, and where we, wherein we argue whose version of Mustang Sally is the best version, things like that, mock arguments. And I told him about NBC and the song on television. I said, Richard, how many records... Do you need to sell to break even? And he said, oh, well, we have low overhead at this company. Uh, we could probably break even on, you know, a couple of thousand. I said, what if I guarantee you 2,000 sales? I could sell them in the clubs if I need to. And, and he only did it because he liked me. He put the song out. He put the, an album out. He let me compile an album of my own material. And lo and behold, they used the song again on the show. And this time, the story of the episode, Boy Loses Girl, was the same as the story of the song, Boy Loses Girl. And America really went berserk. Uh, and and the thing rose, as you mentioned earlier, to number one on the charts. Ironically, it the, the record did nothing in England. Mm. It did well in other countries, in Europe, but for some reason... The, the, the Brits just didn't seem to be attracted Did to the song. air
0: Family Ties? Did we have it on telly?
1: That I don't know.
0: Because hmm. I know, certainly Mike Fox was the big deal. Um, in, in fact, he was referenced in that LFO song, Summer Girls. Michael J. Fox was Alex P. Keaton. That was his character. And you actually yes, that, appeared in the episode as a singer. Um, you are, and I've got the number here, one of only 1,136 songs at this moment to have been a hot 100 number one so you say you share that accolade with the guy who did gangnam style um the soldier boy and some acts who actually are um some of the best recording artists of of, of time um does that make you proud or does having a grammy for liner notes make you even prouder
1: oh i don't know i i i was i i, th- I, th- I think i felt more gratified than anything else, you know, that that finally, because a lot of my friends in the business, they had had their gold records at age 22, and here I was age 42, and so I was a late bloomer, I suppose, so I felt, well, you know, finally people are recognizing me and my music better late than never.
0: Just give me a sense of who appreciated you at the time. So you must have fielded loads of phone calls. Was the first from Mr. Wexler?
1: Well, Jerry Wexler had signed me to Atlantic Records back in the late 60s. He had recorded a song that I wrote with Chip Taylor. It was the first song that Chip and I wrote, actually, called Make Me Belong to You. And uh, Wexler recorded it with Barbara Lewis. And it became a hit record. Uh, and that was became our entree to the great Jerry Wexler. And, and Atlantic Records was my favourite record company you know uh, the coasters the drifters joe turner laverne baker you know ray charles all these great artists were on atlantic so chip and i wrote another song we felt we, we wanted to write a duet for a couple of atlantic artists and so we, we we made a demo we took it to jerry wexler we played it, he played it for him and he pounded his fist on the desk and he said man that's a smash Get rid of the girl in the demo and I'll record you on Atlantic Records. I said, wow. You know, I, I mean, it was like a dream come true. So I had to find another girl. And I was friendly. I, I, at that time, We, my band played at a club uh, as a house band that had uh, hit record acts every Friday and Saturday. I mean, anybody that had a hit record among the black recording artists, we played for them. And one of those was Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And one of the girls in the group, Nona Hendricks, had a voice that I thought would blend well with mine, better than Patty's, because Patty sang in a much higher register. And so I called Nona, and I, and they were on Atlantic also. Uh, I asked, you want to make a record with me? She said, sure. So we recorded the song. And then their manager got into the act, and he said, well, he said, you know, if Billy and Nona have a hit you you know, Nona will leave the group and that's not good. And, and Patty said, well, yeah, but if Billy and Nona have a hit, then Billy could be our guitar player. You know, they can sing their hit and we can sing hits and you can make more money. Yep. Well, the manager didn't want to hear anything about that. So then we had to audition about 20 more girls and they all sounded like they should be singing uh Stephen Sondheim song, you know, Broadway songs. And, and and then finally, Jerry Wexler suggested Judy Clay, who was a cousin of Dionne Warwick and Dee Dee Warwick and Sissy Houston and had sung in the same gospel group, the Drink Art Singers. So we auditioned Judy, and we loved her voice, and we did the song with her. And then it became a hit. In fact, it was the
0: first interracial duet uh, of two people singing a love song. Yeah, because they wouldn't be. I was more amazed uh, about hearing the two of you sing the Bobby Womack composition "We're in Love."
1: This oh, is. Oh yeah, that this, was on our album.
0: Yeah, this you wouldn't. Would you have sung it live? Because I'm trying to see never. at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. A black... No, no, we never did. No, thank, thank goodness you did. And did you not do that because you thought the crowd wanted some more up-tempo tracks, or
1: no, uh, not at all. Uh, they wanted our hits. In those days, you worked in Apollo uh, seven day a seven-day week and five shows a day, and each act, except the star, each act did 13 minutes, 12 or 13 minutes, which meant three songs. So you gave them, uh, I, we, we gave them an opening song that was up-tempo, Country Girl City Man, and then we, did, uh, we closed with Storybook Children, which is our big hit, and then in the middle we put either one of two other songs, uh, ballads that were on the album. And uh, when, when we first got there, they, they hadn't seen our photograph. And so the stage manager, Honey Coles, of the famous tap dance team Coles and Atkins, he said, oh, he said, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. You know, he said, that gives me an idea. And now this is one month after Martin Luther King was yeah. killed. Yeah, yeah, And he said, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left. And let her take three steps out from the wings... And then you make your entrance and watch what happens. So the first show, the first day, I think it was 11 o'clock in the morning, I do, as I'm instructed, one, two, three, enter. And I heard 1,500 people gasp at the sight of me. And I could hear people saying, that's him? That little skinny white boy? That's Because nobody had seen us. And, and we were, we were they were shocked to see this white boy and this black girl singing a love song. Nobody had ever done that before. And as it turned out, we went over very well. Uh, and so well, in fact, that he came upstairs after the first show and he said, I'm I'm going to change up the show because he had put us on second, which was not a really good spot. He said, I'm, I'm going to put you on before the star. He said, because ain't nobody going to follow YouTube. Yeah. That became our spot
0: Headline, from then on. Uh, uh, the it's the reverse not Charlie Pride.
1: Not we were we just one of the opening seven or eight acts, you
0: know. Oh, of course, before yeah, before the big act, Charlie Pride, RCA Records sent his record out in a white label because they didn't want to put a picture of a black guy on uh, a country release. And we'll, we'll talk country later. Uh, I. And he thi- became a big star. Absolutely, the biggest. Him and Elvis were RCA's biggest uh, people with the money. Um, would people not have called up NBC to say, hey, isn't that Bill McCord's kid?
1: <laughs> no, nobody did that. No, no, they just called up and said, who is that? Who's singing that song? What's the name of the song? Nobody knew. Yeah. And, and, uh, and the first time, the, the, the phone operators didn't know what to tell them. But the second time they used the song, by that time they had the information. They said, this is the name of the singer, this is the name of the song. So suddenly organically, people started calling radio stations. Play that song, whatever it is, by Billy Vera, you know. Uh, and then they started calling record stores. and Because and, and, Rhino didn't really know much about record promotion. You know, they were in the business of oldies but goodies, and which didn't need much promotion. So they had to go out and hire a promotion. Man. And, and, and so I spent every morning for, for a couple of weeks They'd have me call up radio stations and say, Hi, I'm Billy Vera, and this is station KRAP. Listen, when I'm in town, I listen to your station. Blah, 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 all that stuff that you do to
0: promote. Bill McCord, I should explain, is your dad, who was a TV announcer, who apparently was one of the guys who would tell them what they won. Would you attend the recordings of these shows?
1: As a little boy, a couple of times he brought me to NBC, and I'd sit in the booth, and I'd watch him. You know, the producer was bring in a a pile of scripts. And, of course, he had to read them specifically in the amount of time allotted. And now the NBC Nightly News or, you know, watch uh, Milton Burrow Tonight at Eight, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, that's what he did for a living, my father, you know. And and also he did some of the quiz shows. You know, he he would uh, announce, they'd say, well, Bill McCord, who's our next guest? And my dad would say, Well, Jack, our next guest is a housewife from New Jersey! You know, all that stuff. Because later I went into voiceovers myself, many, many years later.
0: And also theme music, your voice. And I didn't watch King of Queens, but I know what it is. But it was you who sang, All I want to do is cash my check and drive right home to you. I didn't realise Jerry Stiller was in it, who passed away quite recently.
1: Yeah, he, he played the father, the girl's father.
0: Yeah. George Carlin, you posted on your Twitter feed, which is Billy Beater, because the band of the beaters. George Carlin listened to your DJ broadcast. Bruce Willis would go and see the beaters. Um, Did you encourage Bruce Willis to become a recording artist?
1: Not at all. I met him. We were playing a club on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. and, And this was one week after his debut on the television show Moonlighting. And I had seen that. And I said, boy, this guy really has something. You know, I I think he could be a star. You know, because in those days in America, the uh, trend was pretty boys. Mm -hmm. The actors. Bruce was not a pretty boy. He was just a guy, you know, a down-to-earth guy. And and anyway, he he walks in the club, he comes up to the stage, and he said, man, I I saw your name out on the marquee in front of the club, and I'm a fan of yours, you know. Peter Weller, uh, I, I worked at his nightclub as a bartender and he bought 200 copies of your album and gave it to all of us. And I've been listening to your music I said, wait a minute, aren't you the guy on that new show with Sybil Shepherd?" He said, yeah. I said, dude, I said, you are going to be, mark my words, you're going to be a big star. I, I can feel it. And so we became, you know, kind of friends after that. And he came to all our shows. And he kept coming until I let him up on stage with us. He played harmonica fairly well. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, after a while, he, he became so famous that people started bothering him. And, you know, they'd come over to his table and they'd want autographs. And, and it just became uncomfortable for him to come out to the clubs anymore. So we sort of, we, we made a, this movie together called uh, Blind Date and, and, and we we sort of, faded off after that
0: you know what i like to say about fame is that the kind of fame i want is to walk down i don't know vine and sunset well i know that's a that's a corner to be at vine and sunset not be bothered but know that you could go into a high-end store and buy like a coat or a handbag should you so wish and just be unbothered like max martin or perhaps Ahmet erdogan could have done that but if you're a front of house person if you're the star Um, You can't escape that. So I wondered if in 1987 you had the Bruce Willis experience of fame. Did people come up to you in the street, for instance?
1: Well, you know, different different performers affect the audience a different way. Some stars, like like an Elvis, you know, the, the audience worships them like royalty or like a god. Someone like Willie Nelson, the audience feels they know him. They feel he's a friend, and they can go up and approach him. You know, like an Elvis was not approachable, where Willie Nelson was approachable. I, I think I fell into Willie's category uh, during when when I was doing that well, when I was doing well, and people would would uh, you know pull up alongside of me in the car and Hey, Billy Vera, how you doing, brother? You know, I'd get that. Yeah. and and I, I'd say hello or or some or they they'd come up and talk to me as though they knew me rather than someone to worship, you know, like a Frank Sinatra or like an Elvis or somebody like that. I I think that different, different performers affect an audience and their, their audience in in different ways. And and I I just think it's how relatable you are. You know, I had a manager at one time, you know, he he managed a lot of big, big stars, Dolly Parton and Neil Diamond. and, And he said, you know, Neil, I can I can book him in Los Angeles once a year, and he'll sell out the forum, whatever it is, ten thousand people, two nights in a row. And but people don't want to see him again for another year. He said, "You're the kind of artist that people, the same people, will come and see you every week." He said, "You're more like Johnny Carson, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because because you don't do the same thing every night in in, in the same way." And, and, and you, you provide little surprises for them so they feel like you're a friend. Oh. So I, I guess, you know, I, I'm that kind of performer, you know, and, and people don't bother me. They. And, I mean, now, you know, you know, fame, if you will, is a, a, fleeting, a fleeting thing.
0: It is literally a fleeting thing. You can scroll past someone. And never yes. see them again. And if your eyeball I don't know if you understand the new world of attention, but if you if your eyes linger on a video, the algorithm recognizes that and will give you more of that thing. And that oh, isn't that isn't what culture is. Culture is the surprise. Hearing juice by Lizzo. Or wannabe by the Spice Girls, or I Can Take Care of Myself by Billy Vera and the Beatles. <laughs> which I love. I love thank you for writing that song because I love the groove. I love everything about it. I love how you've got the, the chords shift. Everything's equal. Um the chorus is great. Um and it's one of my favorite songs. So thank oh, you for thank writing you. that.
1: Do you know how that song came about?
0: No, no idea. After many years in New York and I and, and my career sort of it
1: tanked. As we say, my old manager from the 60s, he called me up and, and he was one of these guys. He was a degenerate gambler. Mm-hmm. So he was always scuffling for money. He said, look, I'm broke. He said, uh, and, and you know, you're the, I, I need, I need to make a deal for somebody. He said, you're, you're the only great artist I know that's, that hasn't made it big yet. Cheers. <laughs> so in other words, he said, you're the best of what's left. <laughs> And he said, I'm going to try to get you a record deal out here in California I said, yeah, sure, go ahead Well, so he called me up You know, sometime later He said, I I got you I didn't get you a record deal but I got you a publishing deal Warner Brothers wants you to come out and write songs for them But they don't believe you're still alive That's how far down my (laughs) career was at that point This is like 1978 (laughs) And he he said, but they're willing to fly you out to make sure I'm not lying So they flew me out there, and one of the songs I played them, Eddie Silvers was the guy's name, the the publisher. I played him at this moment. I I looked around after I finished the song in front of his whole staff of people, and he's crying. And that was my first inkling that that song uh, might have some commercial value because I didn't think of it as a commercial song because it didn't really have a memorable title, it didn't have what they call a hook, you know. It was just a song, a uh, lovely song. But you know, I, I didn't think it would sell. I, I was wrong, obviously. So I would go in there, you know, four or five days a week, and they and they I'd stuck me in a little room with a piano, and I'd bang out songs. Well, the, one of the one of the guys there, one of the executives, they, they had a, they hired a new temporary secretary and she was one of these and and at that point at that time in LA cocaine was popular and so this girl she was very pretty she she came up to me one day and asked me if I had any cocaine I said no I don't I don't use drugs Uh, and she promptly turned around and walked away (laughs) well she she then she approached this other guy that worked there and, and I I said to myself boy that's, that's the kind of girl this is. And, and so if you listen to the lyric, I'm writing it from the point of view of this guy because he believed her. But even though his friends tell her that she's no good and, and she's just out for your money or whatever, and he says, I can take care of myself. You know, because so, so many people misunderstand the lyrics of that song. They'll say, oh, you what, what an uplifting song. It makes me feel so good. And I said, you idiot, the, the the song is about a guy who's a fool.
0: In the Yacht Rock <laughs> tradition of the fool. Actually, the fool was big at the end of the 70s because everything sounded like what a fool believes. Right, that's
1: right, I didn't think of
0: that. You were based in uh, LA and that was the Yacht Rock Central. That was where Q was getting on with uh, his records. I presume you've met Quincy Jones. I, I I never I, I did meet
1: him, as a matter of fact. I met him twice. Uh, do you know who Benny Golson, the, the jazz saxophonist, is? Oh, I know the name. Benny Benny uh, is a great jazz composer, great saxophonist. He, he came out of a group called the Jazz Tet. He wrote uh, the Jazz Standards Killer Joe. And uh, I remember Clifford, a beautiful song dedicated to the trumpet player Clifford Brown, who died. Benny has had over 500 cover versions of I Remember Clifford. And he's a dear friend of mine. I I, I met him when we, we were producing Lou Rawls, and we used Benny to write some horn arrangements. So whenever he comes to L.A., he always calls me up and invites me to the show, and he drags me up on stage to sing a song with him. And this one night, who's in the front row, but Quincy Jones, by that time, was kind of late, you know, just a few years ago, Quincy was, was in, not in the greatest of health and it was difficult for him to stand up. But at the end of the song I sang, uh, Quincy stood up, standing ovation, and nice. reached out his hand for me to shake. And I, that really made me feel good, you know, because he's a great, great man, you know.
0: I'm just uh, visualizing... What it would be like to be in a Quincy Jones session because he appears in the Ray Charles story in the movie. Would he be on trumpet in the Ray Charles early material?
1: Uh, no, he. But he was a trumpet player, yeah. and, and they met uh, when you know Quincy was from Seattle, and Ray had moved up to Seattle, Washington, to get away from his home in Florida, and they were in a band. Not at the same time. They were in Bump's Blackwell's band uh, at different times. But, you know, when you're in a small city like Seattle, all the musicians get to know each other and they became very good friends. Ray taught Quincy how to write arrangements and they, they remained friends until Ray's death.
0: And it was uh, Ray's album Genius Loves Company, which I think I must have heard in Starbucks because it was when Verve... Is it Verve Records? Um, When Starbucks started selling CDs, when coffee got into the CD business, Genius Loves Company was one of their top albums. I have memories of hearing it in Seattle, being in Seattle, unsurprisingly, and hearing it. Um, But what I want to know, apart from the fact that um, I haven't yet got Singular Genius, the complete ABC singles of Ray Charles, liner notes by Billy Vera, Five discs, 53 A-sides, 53 B-sides, including devil music and country music. Um, yeah. Where do you keep the Grammy? Where is it?
1: I keep it in my living room. I have I have a, a, several awards of different kinds, uh, and I keep it right at the front of those right. on a shelf.
0: Did you get a trophy from Billboard for the number one?
1: No, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. But what I got was Rhino had the, um, the page from Billboard made into a a plaque and also the, when it was on the on, on cash they, they had uh-huh. a, one of one plaque of each i i made a vow many years ago that i would i would not make plaques on the wall of anything unless it went to number one
0: we were talking about jules holland earlier and squeeze had two singles that got to number two but they both went platinum they sold half a million copies and still stalled at number two do you know what the numbers were When you got to number one, I guess 2000, at least.
1: Yeah, I I honestly don't remember. You know, the interesting thing about charts is... Well, I'll give you an example. I have a song on uh, one of Bonnie Raitt's albums, uh, her, her, her biggest album. Luck of the Draw, it says here. Luck of the Draw, yeah. Nick of Time got all the Grammys, and it went, I think it went to number one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sold about three and a half million albums. Luck of the Draw... Only went to number two and outsold Nick of time doing about five and a half million records. Now you ask yourself why it all depends what else is out at the same time so let's say Elton John or somebody has an album out at the same time and he 's going to sell he 's going to be number one no even though you might sell more than your previous album you see you understand
0: well yes because you get release schedules, they can't, they can't clash. So Harry Styles has the number one record in England at the yeah. moment and he's had to wait for Encanto to get out the way and Ed Sheeran to get out the way and Adele to get out the way. And it's all about the record company because sometimes a Sony or a, a Warner, they, they have a number one priority at that given moment. Um, and I suppose Ray Charles at one point was the number one priority for his label. Yeah,
1: at Atlantic when he was mm-hmm. on Atlantic, and also on ABC Paramount, uh, he was—you know—he was the biggest artist they had there for a while. You know, the great thing that, that, that influenced me about Ray was not his singing. You know, I mean, I—I—I I, I, I always felt it was pointless to try to sing like him. Let Joe Cocker and Bill Medley sing like Ray Charles. That's for them. What what, what influenced me about Ray was he. He didn't stick to one genre. You know, he'd go to rhythm and blues, he would go to jazz, he would go to country songs, you see? And, and I, I like that about him. And I, I didn't want to be, limit myself, just as he didn't want to limit himself.
0: Well, there's two types of music, good and bad. Here's a simple question. What genre is Ray Charles? What genre?
1: In, in the words of the great Duke Ellington, Ray Charles is beyond category.
0: Yeah, he is Ray Charles. What genre is Prince? What genre is Beyoncé? The best artists, the archetypes, not the copyists, the archetypes are their own genre. Chuck Berry, Berry Gordy. Is the spiritual home of American music Detroit, Muscle Shoals, the Mississippi Delta... Or Harlem's Apollo Theatre? And you can use both sides of the paper in your answer.
1: I, I don't think you can you can limit it to anyone. New Orleans, you know, is a very important city in American music. Los Angeles yep, is a very important city in American music. You know, uh, Memphis, yes. Of course, Nashville, Detroit. I mean, in those days, regional music... And there was there was still some of that when I started out uh, right out of high school in 1962. I had a record that came out that year, and uh, we thought the A-side A side was a sort of a rockin a rock a ballad as we call it. It was a it was a cover of a, a of a song that Etta James and Harvey Fuqua had made together called "My Heart Cries." We didn't know it was a cover because. The guy that brought me the song claimed that he wrote it, which was a lie. Luckily, we found out just as the record was going to come out. Anyway, that song went to number one in Pittsburgh and it sold well in uh, New England, in, in Connecticut and around there. Well, about a year or so later, I found out that the other side of this record, which I wrote, was a top 10 record in Texas and Louisiana. Wow. So, the, and, and there were two, that, that was an up-tempo song. So, as I said, music, American music was regional in those days. Uh, you might have a song that was number one in, in, in one city and, you know, did nothing in another city. Or it was number one in a city in January and then it didn't go to number one in another city until April.
0: And is, is that why Elvis on Ed Sullivan, beyond the musical notoriety... Because everyone saw Elvis at once through the medium of telly and then movies, Elvis becomes this larger-than-his-industry figure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I remember it well, you know, and he was, he was, he, uh, the, the Dorsey brothers, you know, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey had a television show. It was a, it was a summer replacement show, for I forget, on CBS and, the, and Elvis was on there five weeks in a row. The colonel managed to book him five weeks in a row. And that just blew him away. He did the Milton Berle show. Milton Berle was a huge television star. And then he did Sullivan. Then he did Sullivan. Oh.
0: And he, and he it was also
1: on the Steve Allen show. With where, the dog. Where, yeah. If you ever get a chance on YouTube to see Elvis on Milton Berle, it's astounding. Because what you're seeing, Milton Berle was this great vaudeville star uh, he, was, he was an old time variety star and uh, comedian and, and all that. So, so he, here comes Elvis, who's this awkward, gawky kid. He sings his song and he's magical. Uh, he does two songs on the show I Want You, I Need You, I Love You, and How Do. And the girls are screaming. You can hear them in the audience. And, and Burl, being the old time professional, he, he knows what's going on. He knows that, that Elvis is upstaging him. Not meaning to, because I don't think Elvis was that sophisticated at that point, but it's happening, you know? And, and, and so Burl is threatened. He's threatened. So he pulls out every old corny vaudeville trick in the business. He walks on his ankles. He, he does a spit take. He ruffles Elvis's hair. Uh, you know everything he can do to try to take the attention away from elvis and he can't he can't do it because because the culture in in that moment has changed and however a million people are watching that show that at, at that second and that moment are seeing the the, the 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 turnover in american culture and it's a, it's a just an incredible historical moment to watch. It's on YouTube. Just just type in Elvis and Milton Berle, and, and it'll come up.
0: Well, I will do that after I hear uh, your Jump Blues show. If I if I'm up early, I can listen live. Do you do it live or do you pre-record?
1: No, I. They have the new way of doing radio shows now that I had to kind of get used to, you know, because I used to do a radio show back in the 80s. And I'd be there in the studio, and I'd have an engineer who played the records. I'd talk, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm right here like I am with you in my professional microphone, which is right over here, which is why it sounds so good.
0: Thank Thank you so much, yeah.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. And the guy's on the other end of the computer, like you are, and he... He records me introducing the song, and then I'll say, and that was B.B. King or whoever. And then, because I've already given him a playlist of the songs I want, and so then he adds the songs to my vocal. Three, I did three two-hour shows in an hour and a half, and then they add the songs later, and, and it, somehow it magically sounds as though it's all going on at once. And it's really a great way to do a show.
0: Yeah. That technology has advanced. You're no longer well. The BBC in the early days would have to get live bands in because they didn't want to upset all the unions, and they would limit the needle yeah. time. And it was when uh, they brought they stopped the pirate ships from broadcasting and brought. You don't you don't need to be told this. You know what happened in British broadcasting in the 1960s and 70s uh, because yeah. you've probably written some liner notes. I wonder whom you haven't because Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Louis Jordan, Louis Prima. You've written over 200 liner notes. I just want to know who you haven't written about or whom you'd want to at this point.
1: Oh, let's see. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to... I wanted to do one on Louis Armstrong. Uh, when Rhino was still in business, they were planning to have me produce and write notes for a Louis Armstrong, a Billy Holiday, and a Duke Ellington, a multi multi-CD set. And then, and then, of course, they sold the company to Warner's, and that didn't happen. For Duke Ellington's 100th birthday, I did, I did a, a, I did a once a single CD for for uh, EMI UK, and I did uh, I did uh, and for Count Basie's 100th birthday, I, I did a couple of two CD sets, and I was limited to, in both cases, to to songs that were. Uh, recordings that were owned by uh, EMI from their catalogue, uh, which was, in both cases, both Basie's and Ellington's case, uh, was some of their greatest material. So I was, I was lucky in that regard.
0: The thing I did as soon as I read your contribution to the obituary of Art Roop, uh, who died at the age of 104, uh, quite recently, was it last week or two weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. Um, rip It Up, the specialty record story, uh, came out in 2019, and there was a one disc compilation. It featured a song I know very well, Lordy Miss Claudy. Uh, st- that's a title and a half. Little Richard's on there. There's a take of 2D Frutti on this compilation. And the music, which was recorded 70 years ago, still yeah. pops. And I don't know if it's the valves, if it's the analogue nature of the recording, but there will always be, and I don't like the word soul. But soul in the respect of someone has left their mark on the recording. It, they're great songs, but they're brilliant records.
1: Yes, Art Roop was a great, uh, a great record man, you know. He, uh, he, loved, he actually loved the music. And I think that comes out. You know, he, when he was a young man, a young kid, he lived in a, in a poor neighborhood, in a, in a mixed race neighborhood. And on Sundays, he was Jewish, but on Sundays, he would go down to the black Baptist church, and he would sit on the curb and listen to the music that was coming out the windows and the doors. And he he fell in love with the the, the soul of gospel music. In fact, when I was compiling the specialty catalog for a number, I think I did about 50 CDs in a five-CD box set, of Specialty Records, I could hear him on the tapes, you know, uh, when he was talking to the musicians. And and he would say, you know, Richard, let's do another take with a little more soul this time. Now, this is before there was such a thing as soul music. But he was using that word before anybody else was. Yeah. That that I heard.
0: Soul music was a Sam Cooke invention, or Sam Cooke pioneered it, and it was kind of the secularization of gospel.
1: And of course, Ray Charles, you know, yeah. before Sam.
0: Well, Brother Ray, um, who's just been inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, because they only had two black people, they now have three, uh, and oh, About great, great. Time too.
1: There, there was also a really good country singer who only made one hit, uh, Stoney Edwards, a black country singer. and. Uh, he had one hit called Blackbird that my friend Chip Taylor wrote. Oh, right. If you ever get a chance to hear
0: that, you'd like it. It was, I think it was a top 10 country hit. Oh, you Did you know? I don't know that. Who is the woman who, Color Me Country, Lindy Martell? Uh, I know bits and pieces about her. Possibly the greatest country musician of them all. I call her America's Paul McCartney. Um, I've got my book of Billboard country number ones and Billy Vera, you're in it. You're everywhere. Uh, On the radio at the same time as The Gambler, the Don Schlitz song, sung by Kenny Rogers, was a song called I Really Got the Feeling, which has an indelible melody, what you wrote. Uh, It was a country number one for Dolly, which was written with her. Is she credited for lyrics or for delivery?
1: Uh, I wrote that alone. She wrote the other side. Oh, right. Okay. Of the record. Uh, the, The way that song came about... I was writing with a, a fellow named L. Russell Brown, Larry Brown, who you would know from his many hits. He wrote uh, Tie a Yellow Ribbon oh, Around okay. the old old, you know, L. Anyway, I was at his house one afternoon, and he, like anybody that does one thing well, he wanted to do something different, and he wanted to be a record producer. So he managed to get uh, a gig producing Nancy Sinatra, so he said, he said, we got to write something for Nancy. I need one more song. He said, see, he said, I got to go pick up my wife at the beauty parlor. He said, see if you can start something while I'm gone and we'll finish it when I get back. So I said, I I had his guitar there and I I said uh, to myself, what do I write for Nancy Sinatra? My God. Oh, she has this famous father. So I came up with lines like, I love my daddy, but it really don't matter what my daddy might say, you know. And I finished the song before Larry got back and I played it for him and he loved it. He said, Oh man, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to record that with Nancy. Well, he played it for Nancy and she hated the song. She didn't like it. So, so Larry was, now he was mad. He said, this was a number one song. If I ever heard one, he said, you got to do something with the song. So we took this girl into the studio and we recorded it with her, but she was lazy and she didn't learn it very well. And, uh, And so everywhere we took the record, they said, love the song, hate the girl. Love the song, hate the girl. The last guy on my list was this fellow named Charles Koppelman. And I played it for him, and he said, love the song, hate the girl, but we're recording Dolly next week. Give me the song for her. I said, you bet. I love Dolly. And so she recorded it, and and it became my first number one.
0: Yeah. Is there a plaque for that?
1: Yeah, yes, they're from Ashcap.
0: Oh, brilliant. Is this uh, Charles the father of Brian Koppelman, who runs the Billions TV show? I don't know. You've, you must have met so many characters, good and bad in your 60-year career, and it's all in this book, Harlem to Hollywood, which has been filmed. A couple of other questions I've got before I let you get on with your day. Um, I went to see Rose Cash a few years ago, and she'd married and was collaborating with John Leventhal. So seeing John Leventhal as a bandmate of yours, what a dream that must have been. Johnny was was a great guitar player. He, he, you know, he wasn't anybody
1: famous at the time, but he, he was a really terrific guitar player. He was a fan of James Burton you know, who was Ricky yeah. Nelson's guitar player and later Elvis's. Elvis's oh, TCB, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, James Burton played guitar on my first hit, which was by Ricky Nelson, a song called Mean Old World.
0: I love that song. I heard it today. Great chorus. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, I, I wrote that with this new girl singer in mind named Dion Warwick. Oh, yeah, I, course, I
0: know her through Twitter. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> what I didn't know at the time was that Bert Bacharach had her all tied up, yep, you know, and famously, so she wasn't doing any outside material. So my publisher got it to Ricky and he, they made a wonderful record. Anyway, Johnny Leventhal, uh, he, he can, he can play just like James Burton and he played also played pedal steel very hmm. well. And then later he
0: married Roseanne Cash. Yes. Yeah. It's really great producer that does her voice set, sets her voice really well. And I read Rose's book he comes off very well in Rose's uh, memoir which is in the music library which is what we're here to discuss because every box set with the liner notes of Billy Vera are in the music library and just to give you an inclination of what this grammy means it's been won in the past by Lou Reed's biographer Anthony De Curtis Johnny Cash himself Tom T Hall Peter Garalnik, who has wrote the uh, the best book on Elvis Presley. Pete Hamill, who yeah, wrote he, Blood on the Tracks, and Glenn Gould, the great Glenn Gould.
1: Peter Goralnik's a friend of mine. I, I I really admire his work.
0: He put out a kind of memoir, didn't he, recently?
1: Uh, he put yes, out a book. Yeah. yeah.
0: I don't know what it's called. I'm gonna have to you're gonna have to put me in touch with Peter, I'm afraid. He did
1: a good Sam Cook book also. Yes. Sun Records book. He did a Sun Records book. That's right.
0: Book. That is right. But my brother has The Last Train to Memphis Uh, I can't remember the title of the other book, Uh, the two-volume set on The Life of Elvis, which I imagine will sell well this year because Elvis is back, Tom Hanks is playing the Colonel, Michael Shannon playing Elvis, they've got Yola playing Sister Rosetta. So rock and roll will be back. Um, But as far as I can tell from looking at these liner note Grammys, Dan Morgenstern is still alive at the age of 92. He's won it eight times and has been nominated for seven more. He was actually up against himself one year.
1: I, I love dan morgenstern great great man there's a new box set on uh, on the on the Mo- on mosaic records black and white label which was a, a label that was a successful record label in the nineteen forties and and Dan wrote one set of notes for it and I wrote the other uh-huh. so I'm really happy to 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 be on the same box set with with Dan Because I, I keep thinking maybe we'll maybe because of dan's name maybe we'll we'll, we'll get a a Grammy together
0: I will, I'll look next year because we know like Lizzo is going to win the Grammy it all depends on how much money you're being bankrolled by um,
1: but you know more important than that you know somebody explained to me because my friend Michael Cuscuna who owns Mosaic Records great jazz producer he and I produced Lou Rawls together and, and he had an 18 CD set of the complete King Cole trio one year I said oh Michael you're going to win You know, how can anybody beat that? Well, somebody else won. I don't even remember who it was. And he said, you know, said sometimes it's just the other guy's year. Maybe it was George Benson. I don't know. People were playing George Benson's records that year, and Nat King Cole came in second. You know, a a nebulous thing, you know. You really can't figure why. And, and yes, you're right, I think, in one respect – that, that on the big labels, they, they encourage, certainly with the, with the important Grammys, not the liner-note Grammys,
0: but, but they encourage their employees to, to, okay. to vote for Columbia Records, or whichever ones they are. Because they know that when... David Hepworth, of great music writer in England, said this, they know that when someone is celebrated, it's always 18-time Grammy winner. So... I don't know if Beyoncé Knowles is going to be 26-time Grammy winner, Beyoncé Knowles, comma. Um, but it just, it means it's a shorthand for they are recognised.
1: It means more record sales. Correct. Which what it's really about.
0: Money, as any business with money goes. It's the same 12 notes for everyone, but some people have got more money than others. Singular Genius, the complete ABC singles is the box set that you, I might ask for that for Christmas, uh, that you uh, wrote, because it's got everything. It's more essential than the essential Ray Charles. I also like the fact that um, the guy Ron Sexsmith calls Mickey Bubbles recorded your song at this moment, which means you've got a David Foster arrangement. Did Were you contacted by David Foster?
1: No, you know, I I didn't even every what I do is periodically I'll go to Amazon and I'll type in various song titles of mine to see if if anybody's recorded the song late this song or that song lately. And one day I did that, and I typed in at this moment. Here comes Michael Bublé. I said, "Oh my goodness, wow!" So I, I checked and I saw that it was. That's how I found out that it was on his album. Yeah. Well, the album, the week it was released, it it. it Debuted at number Debut one. Debut at one, yep. And uh, I, I think up, up to this point, it's done about 14 million Jesus. copies.
0: There aren't many yeah. albums that go diamond nowadays. So not just a billboard no. number one, a, someone on a diamond record. That is, yes. I, I hope you invested your money wisely.
1: Uh, well, I did. And the first check that came for the Michael Bublé record, the first check was, was enough that it was able to finance something i had always wanted to do a big band out. You know, I said to myself, how do I make my big band? Everybody's doing standards these days. It's, it's a cliche. How can I make my record stand out? How can I do something different than what everybody else is doing? And so a friend of mine said, well, you know, what do you know better than anybody else? You know, black music. Why not do songs by the great black songwriters? I said, wow, that's a brilliant idea. So I did songs by Duke Ellington, Count Basie, uh, Buddy Johnson, James P. Johnson. So that's how I made my my big band album. And thank you, Michael Buble. You
0: paid for my big band album. Again, so many people are thankful to Michael Buble. I think everyone buying a Christmas present for the woman in their life is a fan because he's very reliable. His new album, Higher, is very good for for a major label release and uh, he's he's bounced back from the personal problems that he had with his, cause his son was poorly, very yes. poorly. Um, but yeah. yes, beloved Michael Boudlard. I mean, he's no Billy Vera, but he'll, he's fine. <laughs>
1: but who is?
0: Indeed. But you
1: know, I, I, I did meet my uh, David Foster Wait. finally. And I, I had a song that I thought would make a good hit single for Michael. And I and I told him that. He said, I, I, you know, Billy, I'm not even going to listen to it. Because he said, Michael and my daughter write all the singles. He and said, for the albums, them. the albums, our formula for making albums is we do standards like your song at this moment. So there's really no room for any other material. I said, I understand, you know, if you, if you got a formula and it works for you.
0: Boy, you know, does it that, work, yeah. I'm not going to argue that, you know. Yeah, talking about record labels and record industry, David Foster's nose. He must have insured it by now. Uh, the documentary yeah. is available on Netflix, although uh, a far better documentary, Harlem to Hollywood, uh, available on Amazon now, along with the memoir. Rip It Up, the specialty record story, um, may well be peak people's interest, as it did mine, because Billy Vera contributed to the obituary of Art Roop the founder of Specialty Records. We haven't had time to mention a dollop of toothpaste, your dystopian satire in which the mafia uh, comes back. And hey, if The Godfather worked, I've no doubt that yours will. Uh, d- uh, did you have more fun recording the big band album or writing the novel?
1: Oh, uh, you know, I, I had a, an enormous amount of fun doing both. To, to be in Capitol Studio A, where Sinatra or Dean Martin... Peggy Lee, Nancy Wilson, Nat King Cole made all their classic hits. It was thrilling. And to be in there with 18 wonderful, of the best musicians in Los Angeles, it was just a dream come true. So I loved that. I loved every moment of it. And writing the novel, you know, I, it was one of those things. I, I woke up one morning with the first scene in my head. And, and it was this bizarre... Scene because I'd never attempted fiction before, and it was as if every one of the characters knocked on my door and said, "It's time for me to be here, to make an entrance." And that's how the characters came to me. You know, I, I don't know how other novelists write novels, but that's how this one came about. And and it, it was all things that I know about. There's music in there. There's there's food. There's uh, the Mafia, which I had a lot of experience with in my early years, and, and the corrupt politics uh, of America. Uh, and yet there's a love story. There's actually three love stories. There's our, our hero and the girl. There's the love story of his uncle, who's the head of the New Orleans Mafia. And then there's, there's the love story between Johnny, our hero, and his, his roadie, who's his best friend. With all the craziness that goes on in this book, there's also a a closeness of unlikely love love between
0: unlikely people, you know. And I don't mean romantic love necessarily. Platonic, yeah, human love. What is it? Agape. Agape. Um, A dollop of toothpaste available at billyvera.com as is a link to the birthday show stream, May the 14th, which will be the 15th UK time. That's cool. I'm
1: also doing, a, 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 I've been asked to do to perform at my, my old high school.
0: Yeah, this in is June. Brilliant. Your 60-year high school reunion, June
1: 25. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun, you know, singing for my old friends from the old days.
0: Are you are you tempted not to do at this moment, or will you get chased out of town if you don't?
1: Well, I will tell you this. I, I was friendly with Jackie Wilson. I, I played guitar for him oh, a number wow. of times. And Jackie said something to me. He said, kid, if you ever get a, a hit record, you make sure you do that song every time you step on a stage. He said, because that's the only reason they're there to see you.
0: Yeah. Sad, but true. And Jackie Wilson had loads. He actually, he had a UK number one. Uh, did, did you ever see the video of, um, I forgot the name of the song. It popped in and out of my head. I think I it was
1: re-petited re-petited, yeah.
0: Have you ever seen the video with the claymation?
1: No, no, no. I bet it's great, though. Oh, um, it's, I'll look for it.
0: It looks just like him, and it's, it's cutting edge for the time. Uh, but it did so well, by the video. By Barry
1: Gordy, by the way.
0: Yes, correct. And Barry Gordy is, as we speak, still with us i would i would ask if there are any Berry gory stories but we're on 78 minutes and i cannot go over it so i guess they'll all be right, in the book. I'll
1: quickly i'll quickly say that i've met Barry Gordy a number of times and he's the greatest public speaker i ever met
0: ah well if, if you could charm diana ross he can charm us all <laughs> the great, great berry gordy who is known but the great billy vera from harlem to hollywood And into the music library. It will be a delight. Uh, I'm going to order Rip It Up, the specialty record story, because this seems like a very crucial book in the history of Western popular music that you wrote.
1: Thank you. I think it's my best writing as a writer, you know. Yeah. So I'm I'm really proud of it.
0: If I'm ever in L.A. and you're there as well.
1: Please look me up.
0: I will gladly do it. And very happy birthday for, uh, is it next month? middle and end of next month
1: thank you thank you for having me